The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. So I, I try, and what I what I hope I've done with stroke survivors and caregivers, and this is what I want for medical professionals who are working with neurological patients to realize: you can you can over a period of time set them up to where they're using neuroplasticity for their physical and mental health. They are the caregiver is asking for assistance, accepting any assistance that comes along the way. If you're teaching them this early on, they're learning how to communicate with each other better, the stroke survivor and their their care partners in their life. And you're teaching them skills to where I have a lot of survivors, they're still coming to the group seven, eight, 10 years later, but they're doing it mainly so they can help other people. They wanna help the new ones that are coming in. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Angela Wingfield from Germantown, Tennessee. Angela is a physical therapy assistant, a certified personal trainer, a stroke survivor. She also founded a caregiver support group. She's been running this group since 2006. 
Angela has been a PTA for 24 years, working primarily in an outpatient setting at a hospital. She has an advanced proficiency in musculoskeletal and neuromuscular PT through the APTA. Angela's prize is her group, where they consistently have 20 to 30 people attend each meeting. Once a stroke survivor knows that she has had a stroke, they really focus more on the tips she's able to provide regarding mass practice and neuroplasticity. What a great gift. You can find information on how to connect with Angela and learn more about her in the podcast show notes. Did you know that Noggins and Neurons has a membership podcast? We do. Members have access to different episodes that Doro and I create and can interact with us on a more personal level for the low cost of $6.25 per month. You can learn more about the membership and sign up at nogginsandneurons.supercast.com. Also, if you're curious about the work that Doro and I do, head over to our websites. Doro's information can be found at theneurohub.com. And for my resources, go to creativeconceptsot.com. Now I bring you an inspiring and motivating interview with Angela Wingfield. Yeah, I, I've got your topic is near and dear to my heart. It's, it's probably why I became an occupational therapist because I really value people. And I have one question before we really get into this. Okay. You sent me the newsletter and I don't understand the relevance of that, but I want to make sure that we highlight that. Okay. So are you in there? Are you, is that the one that you spoke where you were, gave a talk? The, the newsletter that I sent you was, yes, I gave a talk for, to the TPTA, uh, Tennessee Physical Therapy Association, so that I could teach therapists and PTAs how we need to do better with stroke survivors and caregivers. It was so important to me being a stroke survivor that we need to do better. And once you know what we need to do uh, and how we can communicate better with stroke survivors and caregivers and how we can, how we needed to change and don't just go through the motions. We need to teach these people. We need to be there for the family. And I know, especially nowadays with time constraints, it's, it's more difficult, but it's so important for us to be there and to educate. That's why this podcast became so important to me. And I had to use this, this podcast goes on my newsletter that I send out to every stroke survivor because I want them to be educated and I want them to listen to professionals talk. I want them to learn the lingo. I want them to know about neuroplasticity. I want them to know about everything that's out there because the education and putting that power in their hands is everything. Well, my heart is humbled right now. I'm sure I can speak towards Pete's goal that this is part of what he wanted in starting this podcast. 
Absolutely. And I knew when I heard the podcast for the first time, because as, as a therapist that runs a stroke support group, and especially during the pandemic, I struggled with coming. I I wanted to give up because I struggled with ideas. I struggled with uh, what, what am I going to talk to them about? No one wanted to come speak. Uh, it, It was, and yet there are a world of, of patients out there that needed us. And so I just started listening to podcasts. And when I found out that Pete had started this podcast, when that was the book, Stronger After Stroke was the book that I told every single stroke survivor to get, because he was my hero in that world and what he did. Uh, and then when I heard the podcast for the first time, I was, I was out for a walk and listened to it. And I, I, I thought everyone needs to hear this. Professionals need to hear this. Caregivers need to hear this. Stroke survivors need to hear this. And I started getting ideas from that. What I always love about my group and the importance of it to me is that they they get positive hope. And that's what I feel like the book Stronger After Stroke and your podcast can give them because it puts the power in their hands and they don't know how to get that. So most of the time, I'll, I'll, I'll sometimes have a, a speaker come in, especially now we can have people come in and let's say I bring in a neurologist and they decide we're going to, I'm going to teach them about their stroke and they get very technical about the stroke and they're they're They've got the most beautiful slides and, and they do so much more than anything I can do because I'm, I'm challenged in that arena. And the group leaves feeling you, you can see their body language was just, that told me nothing. And they're always searching for something more than the technical terms. So that's what I feel like is missing in the medical world and what we should be providing to a stroke survivor and caregiver. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) That's already good. We could probably end right here and just, this would be so great. (laughs) I want to comment on what you just said. All of the technical aspects, our professional language, this lingo that we use from the moment they come to the hospital, all through rehab, it's second nature for us. And I've said this to other people, even when you work in a medical setting, for a while, for a time, you get very comfortable in that setting and it's not as unnerving to you. They're unnerved. They're hearing us talk about things that they have no idea what it is. Right. And I love what you're saying about all of this. What I'm hearing you say is people are longing for connection. They're longing to understand what happened to them And in order to understand what happened to them, they do have to have an understanding of what goes on inside of the body, but not from a physician's point of view, from a general understanding point of view, 
And I think that's where health literacy comes in and understanding educational levels of most people and writing and speaking to those levels to the place of understanding that people have. Right. Which really resonates with any of us because my heart was bursting open with everything that you were saying. (laughs) So let me ask you this. How do you want to navigate through this? Do you want to start with your story? Do you want to start with the support groups and then work our way around? I would love to start with my story because it will kind of put a background on one, how I talk and why I'm all over the place because it'll sound, you'll, you'll get because of my stroke, why I go there. My husband always tells me to land my plane. I love that. <laughs> I have some difficulty with that. Uh, so I would love to start with my story um, because it, it will show why I have such passion for this and I want to be such an advocate for stroke survivors and caregivers. I uh, had a stroke when I was 34, just turned 34 years old. And prior to that, I was PTA practicing and the clinic was very, because it's a hospital-based clinic, it was a mixed bag. So you could, you would see pretty much anything that comes along. You'll have some orthopedics, you'll have some neurological patients. And anytime I treated a stroke patient prior to 2005, I just would look at them as if I don't understand you. I don't understand you. I know the neurological things that I learned in school about you, but y'all are draining. And that's what I felt about stroke patients. You are draining me is what I felt before that. And then I was training for a race, uh, the St. Jude half marathon, and I had a beautiful run the day before my stroke. Um, The day of my stroke, I went to get on the treadmill to do a a recovery run and my left arm went numb and drew up and I got a sharp pain in the back of my head. Now you would think what I do for a living, I would know what that means, but I just thought, well, this is strange. Uh, Let me go. Let me, I shook my hand out and I was like, what's happening? And all of a sudden my coordination went. So I would reach for things and I couldn't grab them. Um, And my head hurt so bad, I decided to go lie down. Uh, I I started where I wouldn't remember anything after. It would be bits and pieces over the next week because I didn't go and do anything about this for several days. But I kept getting weaker and weaker. And of course, starting to think, you know, it must be from running And over that next four day period, I got to where I couldn't stand up in the shower. It was at that point, I knew something was really wrong and I was having lapses, lapses in my memory. Um, I would have my left arm that wouldn't work and general coordination and balance issues. I was going to work every day. I don't really remember that. 
And finally, someone at work said, there's something wrong with her. She needs to go to the doctor. I went to the doctor and they ordered an MRI and I had had a stroke in my central right insula. The stroke, once I got looked at by a neurologist, uh, they said that they believed that I had vasospasms that caused the strokes. And they pointed to three different areas that that they believed that the uh, two were TIAs and then one was a stroke. The understanding at that moment, of course, I was shocked because I was in the best health of my life. Uh, it, it was okay, I'll get through this. And I went from running 10 miles to barely walking across the room and furniture grabbing, holding on to things. And I also couldn't get my words together. So I had difficulty, wasn't aphasia, but I had just difficulty with processing. And I knew that it was going to be a challenge for me to return to work. Uh, so I took some time off, which was stressful because I was on my own and didn't have anyone to speak to about what I was going through because I didn't understand what I was going through. Uh, I just knew that something was really wrong other than just the physical aspects. And I couldn't unpack that and make sense of it. As time went on over the, I was off work for about six weeks and I really wanted to go back. And everybody that I worked with said, we'll support you. We'll be here for you if you think you're ready. Let's go. Uh, it was the toughest thing I could possibly do. The neurological fatigue that people talk about uh, is beyond anything I ever expected. The knowing that I'm smart and knowing I can do my job, yet I can't express myself the way I wanted to. Uh, couldn't get my words out correctly for, and so, that, and then you get nervous and I, uh, I, I just had so much difficulty with everyday things, but nobody could see it because I was hiding it. So what I did when I went back to work and I'd have a stroke patient was we would talk and God bless those stroke survivors because, because I never say stroke victims, they're not victims. You're a survivor. Thank and you. that is they were my rocks and we had, I feel bad for them because the therapy they got was probably not as good because they were also doing therapy with me. We would discuss things that we had in common and it would make me understand things so much better. And it was such a sigh of relief. Uh, six months into my recovery, I was still feeling lost. I still felt like I'm not myself. I cannot multitask any longer. I can't sit in a room where there's loud noises. I can't go to a function and be able to sort out all of the things that's going on unless I'm familiar with that situation. And discovering every little thing like that, going to the airport for the first time after a stroke and not being able to 
uh, focus on things. And so you may have your loved one, your husband, your wife, your child that's saying, what's wrong with you? Everything's perfectly normal at the house. What's wrong with you? Come on, we, let's get moving. Why are you acting this way? There's so many little things that pop up after a stroke that it, that the caregivers may not even see until you end up at the airport one time or until you go to a function that that stroke survivor is not used to. So it's, it's teaching the family that that became so important to me. And that's when I decided, okay, we're going to, I need to start my own stroke support group because they need to see not only am I a professional, there's something about when I say, and I'm a stroke survivor that changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. It changes the way they talk to you. Uh, it changes how they listen to you. It changes everything. Because you know. Because you, you have been there. Now, mm-hmm. I, I always tell them no strokes, no two strokes are the same. They're mm-hmm. like a fingerprint. However, I, the understanding and later down the road, I, I always understood the stroke survivor and wanted to be there for them at ev- in every way and educate them when they, from the time they get out of the hospital, I want to be there for them and the family and be able to provide as much education and resources as possible. But then later, uh, about eight years ago, I became a caregiver to my mother who had dementia. So I, I saw a different side of that as well. And I was very blessed to get to see that side and the difficulties of that. And then it became, now I need to address the caregivers as well, more so because you, once you live that role, you go, wait a minute. I thought being a stroke survivor was hard. Being a caregiver is equally as difficult. And the two don't understand what each other's going through. And so it became something that I wanted to be there for both sides and to be able to have them in the same room instead of just separate groups and to where they can understand each other and the importance of that. I'm talking too much and I'm sorry. No, you are not. This is so, it's so important. The conversation is very, very important. And my brain is going to the place where we have, it's like a reductionist, the reductionist viewpoint that we have been taught from that we've lived most of our lives. Really, we have not been taught that we are connected to each other, that an experience is your experience, my experience, their experience, it's valuable to us. Our experiences are valuable to us. And anything that's valuable to you, because we are so connected, is valuable to me when I start to see the value in that. But we've kind of been taught. It's not really, I don't think it's really anybody's fault. It's just kind of happened. And I think that a lot of people enter healthcare fields because they want to help other people because at some point in every person's life, 
I just don't believe anyone is immune from this, that at some point in every person's life, you've gone through something where you felt very alone and you didn't know what to do and getting answers is difficult. And that makes you want to help others so that they don't have that same experience. But in our system, in our medical system, it seems kind of hard to get there. And you are finding a way to do this. And I, that's why I just, I have notes. I have a full page of notes and we've only been on this call for 20 minutes. <laughs> Yay. I just want to make sure I get to all of the good stuff in here. I mean, it's so good. It's so rich already. Um, you were talking, I want to go back to your experience. Um, so the insula, I did a quick Google search, of course, because I don't know my brain anatomy, like by heart, not when it comes to terms like the insula, but it's a very, it's deep in the brain. Deep. Yeah. And it, it lies, it's on the lateral side of the brain. So it's on the side of the brain and it separates the temporal lobe from the inferior parietal cortex. And I'm working on updating, um, a mirror therapy presentation. So I like, I'm like, Oh my God, those are important areas. So it's starting to make sense to me on the practitioner end of things. The reason why processing is so fatiguing, why it's so hard to get to the, the answers and becoming overwhelmed when you go to new places, especially when there's a high cognitive demand. I mean, any place that's busy, like an airport where you have to figure out which terminal you have to go to and they're big. So there's multiple lanes and you have to read the signs and figure out which one you're going to get in the right lane. Oh, then you have to find a place to park. Oh, which is in, which is out. I mean, I live near a smaller airport. It's kind of big, but smaller. It's considered an international airport. And I know it's not that big because I've been to big airports and I get confused. Right. You know, and I didn't have a stroke. So all of that going on because the brain is working so hard to try to figure out what's going on. So it's the, the parietal lobe is responsible for a sensory. It, there's also some motor aspects to the parietal lobe too. And so it's trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? There's information coming in. Oh my gosh, I got to process it. Oh, and then you're like, come on, motor action. I got to, you know, I got to make a decision here. So if the cognitive pieces could please hurry up and then you're like, okay, I need a nap. Right. Right. <laughs> yes. That's, that's it. You, you said it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, to try to understand another person's experience is highly valuable for those of us that have not had that exact experience. But if you've had any experience where you felt overwhelmed, put yourself, you know, use that to connect yourself to another person, even though it's not the same. Absolutely. The, uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick story about when uh, an example of, and I, I had no idea what was going on. So I also had a, a, a loss of inhibition after, after my stroke. So the inhibition was about money um, and people don't think of things like this. So I was very frugal and very much a budget person. And, 
it, all of a sudden I would see things coming to the front porch and go. Hmm. So I was functioning, but I was buying Christmas trees when we already had Christmas trees and bedding. And pill- if I saw it and I liked it, I bought it. Oh, uh, uh, right. That was the fun <laughs> part of it. And then yeah. the other, the other part. So there was a time where I went to the grocery store. So you're, I'm, I'm back functioning in the world and I go to the grocery store and I'm in the checkout line and there's a lot of people behind me. And I realized I forgot peanut butter. Now the grocery store was so overwhelming because of all, uh, when you've had a stroke and you're going up and down the aisles and there's so much. And I still, to this day, I'm like, there's way too much in the grocery stores and you're trying to decipher everything. I I, th- I forgot peanut butter. So I walked out of the line slowly to go get the peanut butter, come back and set it down for her to ring up. And she, everybody was standing there and the lady behind me just starts yelling at me. You know what? I, I can't believe you're so rude that you would do something like this. And I looked at her and didn't understand what I did wrong. Now I do now. I, I basically made the whole line wait. But my brain wasn't processing in that, in that way. And those are the things that we should be kind to people. She had no idea what I was going through. She had no idea that my first time at the grocery store, uh, and I'm an intelligent woman who has been to the grocery store many times, was so overwhelming and took me three times as long to do because of my stroke. And that's the kind of things, those invisible things that we don't, see a stroke survivor go through are really, really hard on them. Oh my gosh. Now I admit I was giggling when you told that story because you know, there's the part of me, I'm getting a little older. There's the part of me that's like, you know, I waited in this line too. I need one more thing. I'm going to go get it. But that is not how our society works. And right. It is not, it's really not funny. And Except for maybe a little funny. It kind of is. <laughs> but getting yelled at. And, you know, people are so quick to spew out anger, which that's a whole other conversation that we could have, you know, from lack of understanding. And they're, they're not too connected with themselves if they act that way. Or they've experienced some trauma in their life where, you know, they're just think everybody's being rude on purpose. And there's a whole, right. there's a whole big picture. And they don't know the big picture. They're one, they are one small piece in a very large puzzle. And it's kind of going back to our society again. You know, we're geared to be busy. We think that we have to shove our days full of so much that there's no room for the person who's had an experience like you had, like many people have, because oh, you know, people are having strokes a lot. Right. You know, it's a big problem in the world. And our rehab system, at least here in the United States, is not set up now even more so to help people have the time that they need to recover. And sometimes it's hard to even remember that everybody is on their own path and everybody's recovery is different. And it's also... What we need to realize as medical professionals is the people that are having strokes 
are not just, well, you've had a stroke and you get to these many visits and this is okay. Now you're, you're go work. These are people that are trying to get back into a busy society as well. A busy society where, where there's so much going on and the expectations are high. They're, they're working professionals that are trying to go back to work with families. They're, they're not just the, the old lady who goes into the nursing home after she's had a stroke. That's not the way it is nowadays. There are people that are trying to get back to, to life. And there's, there's a piece, and this is why I think support groups are so crucial. The, the right support group is a network for people, for survivors, for caregivers. That's, that is your network. And when you have the correct resources for them, they can thrive. And they're, they're getting back to their so-called normal may not look the same, but getting to some type of, of place where they are okay, where they are, rather than just, you know what, you're not going back to work. You can't go back to what you were doing. So you file for disability and have a good life. That's not what these people are looking for. That's not what humans need. They, they need those parts of things, but they need so much more because this is an evidence-based podcast. I did a little research and I found an article that talks about how to optimize social outcomes for people following stroke. And one of the things that struck me very quickly is exactly what you're talking about. It's helping them work through identity concepts because they, they've lost that first identity that they have. I think a lot of people who've had strokes report to me that they don't feel like themselves anymore. And so if a lot of those social aspects are removed from them, if they don't go to work anymore, that's their career identity. If they can't function as well or at all in any caregiving role, if they're a parent, if they're a, a spouse, you know, where they're, they have responsibilities at home. So their spousal role, what's that identity? You know, that changes. And when we place people into these dependent positions, then you feel like you're always taking from someone else when you're used to giving and being part of a, a mutually reciprocal relationship. Absolutely. So it sounds like that's what you're helping people with, with your support group. And I want to make sure that we touch on the, the topics that you emailed me about, and then, which is the way that you provide education and care when people are still in the hospital. And then moving into the support group that you run. The problem nowadays with the hospital care, and I'll, I'll give you an example as to why I wanted to get to the family, the stroke survivor, the caregivers right away while they're in the hospital. Working an outpatient, uh, I may see a stroke survivor that has been through a week in the hospital. They've been through two weeks to a month in rehab. and when they come into outpatient may take them a week, 10 days to get into an outpatient setting and the family, the caregiver 
has not been given a tremendous amount of education because our rehab facilities are crazy busy. Our hospitals are crazy busy and they're overwhelmed. They have not necessarily been set up for success. So what I wanted to do is make sure that they know the basics right away and to also give them resources, to give them that information while they are still in the hospital. I have told patients, um, I've told the inpatient therapist, excuse me, that if you can, if there's a caregiver that can come over to the group or email me or text me, I will be happy to talk to them about any questions that they have. And if I can do that right away, it's not like handing them a packet and saying, here is your information that's got, you know, their medications and here, this is what you do after a stroke and send them on their way. They need to hear from someone. They need to hear a voice, that, uh, uh, that human connection that you talked about. Most of the time when I have that happen, the caregiver frustration is decreased. The stroke survivor is, is already starting when they're in rehab to understand why do I need to sleep more? And the caregiver, he's sleeping, he's sleeping 12 hours a day. Well, he had a brain injury. And that's, that, that's how the brain recovers. Right. And mm -hmm. a lot of times they're coming into an outpatient setting and they, let's say they go home from the hospital immediately, especially during the, the pandemic, they were getting them in and out pretty quickly. And the problem with that was they were sending them home. And a lot of these patients weren't coming into outpatient. They weren't comfortable coming in. And so they, they would wait until they go to their physician for their follow-up and they say, you need therapy. So then the caregiver comes in and says, I've been waking him up because he's trying to sleep all day long. Well, it's very important for his recovery for him to sleep mm -hmm. or he has no motivation. Well, the because of where his stroke was, this is why he doesn't have that motivation any longer. And just that education calms them. So getting that education to them as soon as possible is very important. Helping people understand the recovery process. Absolutely. You know, that some certain parts of this are normal. That's where Pete's book was so helpful to me in my practice, because I always felt like I worked in the intensive care unit. So I always felt like the few minutes that I'm spending with the family, the friends, the caregivers, it wasn't really that much. I mean, it was in the middle of the emergency still, you know, so it's, right. hard, to it's hard to take in information when you're still processing that this person has have had a stroke is having a stroke. Sometimes the stroke's still evolving. Sometimes people are on ventilators, helping them breathe. Sometimes they're agitated and, and they're just trying to process what is happening to my loved one and to, to give people a quick rundown when, when every other professional is talking to them, they're not going to really remember that much. They're not, yeah. no. And, and the acute, once they hit the, the rehab side of it is where, and they're so thankful initially that their, their loved one made it through it. They're, they're just, they're so thankful. The frustration usually doesn't hit till after they get to us in the outpatient setting. And that's where it, it, they're like, things start to slow down because of 
the timing and that's the way the brain works. And so as things slow down with the recovery, the frustration sets in. And that's where the education should come in prior to that of what to expect at this point. Yeah, the whole um, reality starts to settle in. And you realize that this may not be a quick recovery. This may not be something that someone bounces back to become the same that they were before. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of second guessing happens during that phase too. You know, that is something, if I could take anything away from people, that is something that I would just love to just, just take it away and ease. Yeah ease the pain of that because I've just spoken to so many people. I just remember one of the last, one of the last really meaningful interactions I had with a woman's daughter, the woman, she, I think she was having a stroke that was evolving over the weekend because she had done better with physical therapy. than when I went to see her later in the afternoon, she just could hardly stand. She was lethargic. So pretty sure the stroke was still evolving. And the daughter was like, I just wish I would have, I wish I would have. And I said, you did your best. You know, you did what you knew to do. You, we are so hard on ourselves in that 2020 hindsight vision. Absolutely. In the moment, making decisions is much more challenging. So yeah, you see them in that place in that place where they feel like everything is falling apart, mm-hmm. where the, and, and being able to, to say, here's what to expect uh, when they do hit the rehab, the uh, rehab place, or when they leave the acute care setting and they're going home, straight home, which is happening a lot more now, I want to be able to give them that information because they're so, they're so excited about getting to go home. And then reality sets in as soon as they get into that house and they start trying to do the things they used to do, teaching them about that, that new normal, um, which is forever changing, uh, is, is so important. And not going backwards to where you, what you can't do now, look at your progress since you left the hospital. It's, it's, that positive reinforcement to me about that progress helps them with avoiding depression. Mm-hmm. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about your story and that part of your recovery. When I so rudely interrupted your grocery store story, I think that that's something that would tie into what we're talking about right now. So you went back and got the peanut butter. Oh, you're frozen. There we go. (laughs) Oh, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Sometimes the internet freezes. It happens. It's all part of the podcasting experience. (laughs) (laughs) We have to keep with Pete's Pete's rule that if something is funny, it doesn't get cut out. So no, I totally agree. (laughs) Totally agree. Now here's the funny part is you said, uh, you know, returning to my story. Yeah. I don't remember where I was. Okay. So, that's okay. So I'm going to remind that's my you. my stroke part. Yeah. So, well, it's a two-part question. Okay. 
So you were telling us about shopping, being in line, all the people in the store and you forgot peanut butter. So you left the line to go back to get the peanut butter and the woman yelled at you. Yes. And, um, so the next, that part, I I would like, if you're comfortable sharing for you to share, like, how did you handle that? And what did, you know, what was the rest of your day like? And then after that, maybe we can go into you talking about your recovery process, like from when you went home. Okay. Absolutely. The, the day that the, the peanut butter, the, the interesting part of my stroke and how I felt about things, it was like, I was a child that I didn't have a lot of emotion about it. Um, I, I, my stroke during that time, I had lived in that moment. There was no past and there was no future. It was just whatever happened, happened at that moment. And it was almost like it went out of my brain. As soon as it happened, it just left. So I I don't know if there were very strange. I didn't have a lot of emotion about that incident. I didn't feel bad about it. Um, The only time I ever felt I know I went home and went to bed because I was so overwhelmed by the grocery store. I knew that the grocery store looking at, I remember thinking the, how many breads do we need? And the, the back and forth of trying to figure out where things were, it it was so overwhelming and that it, it tired me out and I went to sleep. The, I love that. I have to say, I just love what you said about how many breads do we need? When my daughter was little, we were driving down the road and they were, um, townhouses were being built all in a row across the road. And she says, mommy, how many front doors does one house need? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's what that reminded me That's of. Like, one. how many breads do we need? <laughs> right. How, how many do we need? How many different types of cereal? It's when you've had a stroke, it, it can be a little bit overwhelming, uh, and it was, you know, my stroke was not a made a massive stroke. It was, it was a, a small stroke, but I hate saying that because to the person that's having a stroke, it's not small. Oh, it's, uh, the, the cognitive effects can be very overwhelming. Um, so I, I never, I I went into a patient's room after my stroke one time. This was when I was also treating inpatients. And I remember looking at her and all of a sudden feeling like, am I having an out-of-body experience or am I just, I never felt like myself and I couldn't explain it to anybody, but I felt like Someone had given me a beer and a shot of vodka. And then I went about my day, not knowing, not able to, to function quite well, a little slow balance, a little bit off. And that was just how my days went every day. That's rough. Just trying to sort through how am I going to get my job done, 
get back to the department and know exactly where I'm going to get there, write my notes, be able to go to outpatient, talk to a patient, educate a patient. And usually I would just go to work once I was able to return to work, which was probably too soon. I would do my job and I would go home and go immediately to bed. By the end of every day, my words were twisted. I couldn't have conversations. And at that time, I was so focused on making sure that I got back that I wasn't focused on anything else, that I wasn't focused on relationships with people. Um, And probably uh, I was married at the time. And I believe that that was part of the reason why my relationship ended is because of the fact that he didn't understand me and I didn't understand him. Mm-hmm. And I was also very much um, upset with the fact that someone wasn't willing to understand what I was going through during that time. So that's another reason why I'm so passionate about trying to help families through this is because there needs to be an understanding of what's going on. Well, reasonable. Um, I mean, that's reasonable. It's reasonable to expect another person to help or to, to at least try to understand. I, I like the way that you're saying it and you're, you're acknowledging that you didn't either. Right. You know, and, um, you know, we are where we are in life. All of us are where we are in life. And, you know, it's a good day when you start to understand some things, you know, simple things like kindness, like letting go of judgment. You know, that's been a big one for me. It, it changed me. It changed the way I practice. Like, it's not my job to go through life judging how anybody does their life, whatever Absolutely. it is it's my job to manage me. But until you get to that place, that's kind of, you know, life can be a little bit more difficult to navigate. And even when you are in that place, you still have decisions to make all the time. How much of this can I give? How much should I give? How do I give? There are so many questions. And it seems like some people navigate it so well, and so beautifully. Mm -hmm. And others of us struggle through that. And right, you know, so when you went back to work now, you, did you say, yeah, you, you went back around six months? Uh, no, it was about six weeks. Oh, six I, weeks. I was, I was, I was a little early. Um, oh, it, you said at six months, you still felt lost. I did. I did. Okay. So I would love to unpack that a little bit because that's a common theme that I've experienced, I've, I have worked in outpatient before, and it is a common theme that I've experienced, heard from people that they just want to get back to work. And I also hear it in different, um, Facebook groups that I'm in people, they just want to get back to work or they're kind of being pushed to get back to work. And it seems like we do value work very much. We need to work, you know, money coming in is a good thing. It is. Yeah. (laughs) It makes it possible to buy all those things and pay our pay our housing and all that, right. stuff, you know, <laughs> um, but some people are driven. So let, can we talk about that experience for you a little bit about returning sure. to work and then how you kind of help 
your patients or your clients work through that? Uh, a lot of it has to, with, with me, I jumped all in because at the time I wasn't educated enough about going back to work post-stroke and I wasn't fully aware of my cognitive issues as well that when I said, I'm ready, I, I was, I was a stubborn young woman and I'm ready. I can do this. And they, they, they asked me, are you sure? Yep. I'm sure I can do it. And I went back to work and I hid everything. Uh, and I, a lot of that, it's, it's difficult for me to really remember how hard it was for my brain to just get through the day. Uh, but what helped me the most was that routine of working with patients helped. Um, again, talking to patients helped. I did take breaks throughout the day where I would just, just sit in a quiet room for a few minutes to let my brain rest. The, how I transitioned that to patients that are higher level patients that have executive dysfunction is trying to make people understand that you need to start that small instead of all in like what I wanted to do, which let's just go all in. Uh, I have a lot of patients that I see that have issues with, they, they immediately jump into a social setting or they go back to work. And instead of sitting with one person and having a conversation or going to a function where you may have three people there that you're familiar with and are familiar with the fact that you've had a stroke and will be, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? There it goes. Be more patient and understanding. Thank you, Deb. Mm -hmm. Be more patient and understanding with you. And they jump all in a lot of the times into these situations because they don't know. Start start this way. Start with, you know, a, a go out with a close friend of yours one night to a restaurant that you're comfortable with and sit and have a conversation and order food from that restaurant. As simple as that sound, that's not simple after a stroke to some people. That makes so much sense because if, if you think about not ever having a stroke and you go to a place that's very busy and crowded with people that you don't know, I personally find social situations very demanding on me. I enjoy them, but I also come home exhausted and I, it's, it's just, you know, it's a lot of work for me to make conversation with people. Absolutely. I love what you're saying, because this is really a very much a graded approach when you're with your friends, when you're with people that you feel really comfortable with, it's not hard, but conversation right. isn't hard. You can just be yourself. And, you know, if things go awry, oh, they just, you know, they go the way they go. It's not a big deal. So if you're going with somebody who understands and you kind of just take this graded, gentle approach and bring in as much familiarity as you can, because there still will be demands. There will be demands right. on your body. There will be demands on your cognition. It's socially all of it. Right. So that just makes so much sense. And if you have your person that you can trust to recognize when things, maybe the wheels are falling off, things aren't going well, they can just, you can have a code word. Right. 
you know, a code phrase that lets both of you know, okay, this isn't going well, we need to leave. Yes. And I I hear from patients a lot uh, about their disasters. They, they call them disasters where they go out in the, and, and this is a common thing where maybe they can't keep up with the conversation. So they may have three friends and they think they're doing it right, but the friends are talking and moving so fast with the conversation that by the time the stroke survivor is trying to get the words out in order to just join in on the topic, they've moved on to topic two, you know, it, 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 and they're not aware. So I try to teach people then educate them, educate them. I have no problem with telling somebody I go to a party now and I am very uncomfortable. I have a wonderful husband who knows all of my issues post-stroke and whenever it's an uncomfortable situation and if it's a place we don't know, he grabs my hand and he knows I need to be guided. Beautiful. It's like a grounding experience and no one has to know. They probably just think, oh, you two just love each other so much. Right. And that's so nice, right? Yes. And it's probably both. And it is both. And and he, he ground, he does ground me. And in that moment, I know that if things go awry and I'm uncomfortable and I have to meet people and I'm not going to remember any names that he is there, he's there for me. And I do tell people if I know I'm overwhelmed in that situation and they introduce themselves, I I will tell them I I may or may not remember your name. I've I've had a stroke. So I apologize if if I, if I ask you again, what your name is. And I think that is okay. And a lot of stroke survivors don't feel confident with that. And I want to instill, it's okay. We need to be educating the public on what it's like to have executive dysfunction, what it's like to have aphasia. We need to be educating them on these things. I love that. And it takes some of the pressure off of them because I think a lot of us as humans, we think there's something we immediately go to the thought there's something wrong with me, right? That they don't want to. And really it's, you have your challenge. And now that they know they can just remind you what their name is. Absolutely. It can be as simple as that. I have always struggled with names. Once like, like you talked about the social situations is it's overwhelming anyway. Um, I didn't enjoy them tremendously before felt really comfortable, but now it's, it's almost like I, I have my brain shuts down cause it can't, it, it can only take in one thing at a time. That's pretty much where it is. And when that happens, it makes you want to run from social situations, period. And what do these stroke survivors need to do? They need to be in social situations. They need to be back out there and enjoying life. Yes. But it needs to be done with modifications. Uh, we, I have taught many people about returning to work is, is taking it in pieces. It's got to happen in pieces. It's no different than if someone has had a hip replacement and they, they say, I want to go, well, it's a little different, but they want to go back to work and they want to go back to work. I have to go back to work in three weeks. Okay. I suggest that you either start with a shorter day or 
start back on a Wednesday so that you're only working those three days that week. The stroke survivor like me, but I, I want to go back to work. I can do this. This is how this you would want to progress with this the same way you would with that hip replacement, whether it be that you do so many hours a day that you have those breaks in between, you go sit in a quiet room and rest your brain. And then, or you start, you, you do shorter days, shorter weeks, whatever it may be. Teaching them that with the executive dysfunction helps. And then teaching them how to interact with their coworkers and educate them on this rather than hiding it, educate them about aphasia. Um, uh, I, I know, and this is kind of getting off on a side note, but if Bruce Willis, who has been diagnosed with aphasia, uh, I had my group meet last month and they all came in with information. They want to talk about Bruce Willis with aphasia. And a lot of them, it, it was, it was really interesting to hear them because they are so educated about what aphasia is and what it, what it isn't. And when Bruce Willis was diagnosed and the statement was made, there was a statement of how it's affected, the aphasia has affected his cognitive abilities and his intelligence. That was someone brought an article that says that. And a, a lot of these people with aphasia were so up in arms because they're like, it does not affect your intelligence. And I said, you're absolutely right. It doesn't affect your intelligence. And I said, but you have to educate people about that. You have to tell people when you're in these settings, I have aphasia. And this is how my aphasia affects me. It does not affect my intelligence. So I don't know why I got off on that tangent, but that was that that's one of those things where I feel like as stroke survivors, we need to be educating the world that you can live with the stroke. We do. And we have to remember that that's why it's important to check your source, you know, because especially in the, just the general media, they just take snippets of information and throw it all together and try to make it sound like something. And they don't realize how much they, it's obvious that they don't know what they're talking about. Right. To those of us who do understand. Um, but even if a source seems credible, Maybe your experience is different, or maybe you're lacking insight into something, or maybe it's a combination of both. It could be a lot of things, but I love what you're saying. Being the educator and helping people understand, this is what it's like for me. Do you want to be my friend or not? Right. (laughs) I think the sting comes if people don't want to interact with you, but educating them and helping them to understand what's going on could help all of us feel more comfortable being around each other. Absolutely. You know, there's that big stigma around people with disabilities and, you know, a lot of people just don't understand and they're just not comfortable and we don't know the reasons for that. And if you're up for it, provide some education. I mean, I'm certainly willing to give it a try. have another question for you. Yes. So when you, you went back to work and you were coming home and sleeping, did you end up modifying your schedule? Did you make some modifications in your life? Like how did, how did this work out for you? 
the modifications that I made, I, I was, I thought looking back, I was very much a multitasker, um, did everything, wanted to be the best at everything. Uh, I think the way that I handled it afterwards, I tried so hard to be that person again. There's still a part of me that, that tries to be the take on everything, multitasker, um, being able to do everything and get it all done. And I'm 16 years older. That's one reason I can't, but I'm, I also know that I don't have the ability to multitask. Um, I have to do one thing at a time or it, I'm like some, a child with ADD, which I never had as a child, but apparently after my stroke, that's, that's what I have. I did not deal with my post-stroke recovery. Well, I did not deal with it well. And part of that was because of the fact that I just wanted to get back to me. So depression set up because I wasn't getting back to me. I wasn't becoming, I, I would try to push myself into being able to, and I would deny the things that I was doing wrong. So if I put things in the wrong place, um, I, I would all of a sudden I would find a dress that I've been looking for and it would be in my knitting bag. So you, you never, it, it, and looking back on it, it was, it was funny, you know, it, it was like, well, there's the dress. Uh, but I, I tried to cover that so much because I just wanted to be the person that I used to be. Once I realized, and once I accepted myself, which took quite some time. Um, I tried to go through counseling. Uh, I went to uh, the EAP program, you know, they go get some help if, if you're feeling depressed about that you're not where you need to be. And the response that I got from her was, so you've had a stroke, big deal, move on. And, and I, I laughed because I was, I was surprised at that reaction. And uh, I thought, okay, that's what I'll try to do. And instead of fighting who, I, when I left that office, I thought I'm not going to fight to be who I want to be. I'm going to let things be what they are. And I'm going to try to grow. And the only way I could do that was by giving back to others. And once I realized that, that this was, and it took a while, but that my recovery was going to come from setting up this group uh, because it, it, we're in, I'm living the stroke belt and we had a wonderful woman who was a caregiver that ran a small support group here and it, it was just falling apart. And so we didn't have any other support groups for stroke survivors and caregivers my recovery happened once I got involved with that because I was researching for myself. I was researching for others. I was giving back. And that to me changed who I was. It made that my mission, everything about what I was, what I used to be. I didn't need that anymore because these deficits that I have 
are what's going to help me identify with a stroke survivor. It's what's going to help me with teaching a caregiver how to do things and how to understand that stroke survivor better. Well, you have a very unique perspective. Absolutely. Right. I feel blessed and fortunate that this happened to me in the way that it did because of the fact that I still have the abilities to, to, uh, to work and to do this job and to have this career and to help others. It's, I'm so fortunate. Do you think that when you decided to start helping with a support group that you found your value and it gave you absolute meaning. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. And that's what I want to instill in other stroke survivors as well is we have to, and medical professionals, if we have that time and that ability, try to help them find that value. And a lot of that comes from helping others. Well, it does because it gives us that connection. Oh, you said something really good. So, oh, you said as professionals, if we have the time. So I have, this is a two part thought. So something that I've learned over the course of my life is that the things that I really want to do, the things that feed my soul, sometimes I have to make the time for them. And when I was approaching the end of my time at the hospital that I worked at, I worked weekends only. It was a really nice position. I worked in the ICU. I was an early mobility therapist and it, I was changing to realize that I had to be attentive and attend to the people that I was interacting with. So that meant when I was working with my clients, if they were sitting, I tried to sit. If, if we were standing, then I wanted to stand in a place where they would know that I was there and I was present with them. I just tried to position myself and be present in the interactions. And the other part of that can't remember. <laughs> I'm rubbing off on you. <laughs> All this, this has been happening since I started working from home. Um, <laughs> you said give back. We were talking about value, meaning time, making the time. Oh, the other piece of this is as you've been sharing your story, you kind of talked about the stages of grief without labeling them the stage, like they're, I think they're more like healing stages, but you talked about depression. You talked about denial. You talked about acceptance and all this whole process that you went through. So I'm wondering if sometimes the things that we want to do to help people, to give people back, maybe we're doing them at the wrong stage in their recovery, because if you work in a hospital or an inpatient rehab, you're going to be doing very different helping things because, I mean, we have to deal with what's happening right now, you know, and then as a person moves through the process, now they're an outpatient, they're ready to take in more, but maybe they need to be home for a while and just be in this 
going through their stages and get to a place where they can accept what's gone on with them and start to think about what they would like to do with their life. And I think maybe there's not enough professional interaction when people get to that stage, not that it has to be professional. I mean, it can be a friend, but not everybody has those strong social supports. Right. So meeting people where they are with what they need then, and also your own self, what is it that you want to do? Right. My thought just left me as well. <laughs> it, it, was, that's, it was sitting right there. I know. Well, this is why my paper looks like this. <laughs> it's a full sheet and we've, yeah. That's okay. It'll come back. It'll come back. It will. It will. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of the problem that I see with uh, stroke survivors that are patients is they are coming in like, let's, let's talk about the grief part. Let's say they're coming in to a clinic and they have that depression because they're starting to realize, Oh, wait a minute. So I was walking quickly uh, in rehab. I was, I, I was able to go from not being able to do anything. I, I couldn't even transfer to now I'm walking 200 feet. This is amazing. And there's all these amazing things. And every day is a set of fireworks of just look at this. This is just going to get better and better and better and better and better. And the importance of like you were talking about the neuroplasticity podcast, the importance of teaching them what neuroplasticity is and how to use neuroplasticity for your physical improvement and for your mental improvement as well. 100%. That is so crucial. And a lot of times we're teaching, yeah, you got to do, you know, this is what you have to do to ignite neuroplasticity. And it's like, okay, why are we using neuroplasticity to change their thinking about their recovery and to help them with the phases that they are going through, which I would have loved to have done that with myself back 16 years ago, because it would have saved me a lot of heartache and depression and uh, feeling like I wasn't good enough and feeling like uh, trying to hide it and understanding what they're going through. It's, you can use neuroplasticity for your recovery in every way. You can, all of life is neuroplasticity. So, you know, just the way that we think about things. And a lot of people have, you know, that internal versus external locus of control that we learn about in psychology class. It's just a general psychological concept that we learn about. You know, some people believe that they are responsible for themselves and other, other people believe that this stuff that's happening in the world is happening to them and there's right. nothing that they can do about it. And like that feeling of control over your life and the way that we think about things really is important, but I also am not a fan of this, um, always trying to be positive. I don't think that that's super helpful. I think there I've done that in my life. And this is a funny story. I needed some help with some 
uh, gut health issues. And I found a chiropractor who's a nutritionist. And when I signed up to work with him, the very first appointment, he said, you have a very negative energy. We're going to have to work on that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> hmm. You know, people tell me that I'm positive, but you know, I was covering up stuff. I wasn't feeling my emotions. I wasn't, I thought that things that made me feel sad or bad were bad. And right. that's not true. We need to feel that stuff. And that's where I think the right, like, like those clinics that have neuropsychiatric care, I think are really beneficial for people to help people work through the emotional process of having a stroke so that they can Absolutely. know who they are. And if they can, it, it, and there's still a stigma to that. And it's, it's still difficult to sometimes get these survivors to, to lean into that, but the importance of it is huge to, to, and, and, and you're right about the positive, um, sometimes being overly positive and that's, I don't, I don't think a lot of stroke survivors that are going through a hard time want to hear, you know, you got to see the positive side of this. No. No, because right now, really, it doesn't feel very positive. No. no. And, and that's okay to feel that. Yes. Way. Yes. I had a lady one time, she didn't have a stroke. She was, she was a caregiver for someone and she ended up not taking care of herself. So she got sepsis and ended up in the ICU. I worked with a lot of people who didn't take care of themselves and ended up in the ICU. And I saw her in the ICU in acute care and then in rehab. And she had one of those nose, the nasal gastric tube in mm-hmm. her nose. And she's, we were working on stuff and she's sitting on this commode and she goes, I just feel like I've got this big tube hanging out of my nose. And I go, well, you do. And we, both, <laughs> we sat there and laughed. <laughs> just, it was like one of the dumbest things. And one of the most real things like this is really what's happening right now. You know, right. This is, you know, it's, we can't pretend you don't have a tube hanging out of your nose. Just like we can't right. pretend that someone didn't have a stroke. We can't pretend that someone, someone's life wasn't just drastically altered. You know, and I, I sometimes think as healthcare professionals, if we can be comfortable letting other people be themselves with us, it could be much more healing for them. Absolutely. And I think that that is part of the reason why they asked me to do when I did the talk to the, because I didn't understand why I was going to do a talk to other rehab professionals about how to deal with stroke survivors, because I thought, well, they know, but there's a lot about when, when a stroke survivor comes in, that you need to see other than the fact that they're, they have left side neglect or that they're, um, that they have aphasia. There's, there's more to it. And if you pick up on it, the minute they come in and you see the interaction between the stroke survivor and the caregiver, and you talk to that stroke survivor while you're working with them and trying to like you say, unpack everything about who they, where they are at that moment, you can address some things that you may not have other than the left-sided neglect. 
that will help that family and will help that stroke survivor and will will at least give them so, oh it you know it doesn't have to be just i'm positive poly about the situation just the education of well here's why they're not able to do these things oh and if you try it this way they're going to have more independence and you're going to be happier you know i i know that i'm just kind of generalizing but to me, that is that is so huge is to be able to see that person and not just their stroke. Yes. And when you're I hear you saying when you're having these conversations, you're you're gaining these understandings, you're having the conversations now with their loved ones, you're actually seeing everybody. Everybody is being seen and heard in this conversation. So it's easier or it may be easier, it may help a little bit for everybody to be flexible, rather than just expecting the survivor to work a little bit harder. At right. Things. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you had emailed me, and in your email, you said, you make it a point to make sure that each therapist or student is educated on the importance of patient and family education along with making sure that you're addressing the emotional issues that both the survivor and the caregiver go through. And that's what we're talking about right now. And I love that. And so do you, did you set up a, like a formal training for therapists and students so that they can understand that? Or do you, is it just something that you work with each of them and help them understand? It's not a, it, it probably should be a formal training. I just haven't ever done that. I, I have asked the PTA schools and I, I would like for the PT school here in uh, Memphis to do so as well, to send the PTA students to my stroke support group, have that be part of their neurological. So if, if they're, they're in neuro in the spring, have them come to each one of them needs to come to a support group. So send forward time so that they can learn about what these people talk about. It's it, to me, it is so eye opening, and I get a lot of positive feedback from them coming to the stroke support group. The other thing that I try to do is each stroke survivor that comes in. So let's say they come in for an evaluation. I want to have a conversation with them, whether it be the 15 minutes at the end of the evaluation, I will have a conversation with them or the next time they will be on my schedule. And for those 15 minutes, I will. And it's not, it's not something that we have to necessarily, well, I don't, I only have 45 minutes with this patient. I don't have that time. I may put them on a recumbent stepper. They're working on trying to increase the blood flow. And while they're doing that, talk to the stroke survivor. If everything is well, I'm going to say, while you're on here, I'm going to walk out here. And if you're okay, I'm going to check on your daughter and see if she has any questions for me and keep it that simple. Mm -hmm. So usually where, where I am, they, the therapist, we have a, a camaraderie to where they know that I want to be involved with each, with each patient. So they know that I'm the person that they come to for that. So it, it's not necessarily anything formal, but it is something that if it's a stroke, we have it set up to where I'm going to talk to them at some point in time. I will have that 15 minutes carved to where I go and 
um, talk to them and then I give them my information. I have rules as far as how they contact me. I'm not just up at midnight talking to patients, but if, if they text me and have a question, I'm, I'm going to, going to call them or text them back and, and at least have that open communication to where if they, if they need a resource, I'm available for it. Wonderful. And that sounds semi-formal. Semi-formal. You know, you have the plan and your, in your setting, you know what the plan is, but the people who come to you, they don't necessarily know that that's how you have it worked out, but, and it, and it probably feels much more relaxed and caring to them. Yes. Yes. So for the PT presentation that you gave to the, was that the PT association? Yeah. The Tennessee physical therapy association. So how did you do, did you do it like a formal presentation? Did you do it like a conversation? How did that go? I, I, it started out as a formal presentation that ended up a conversation. Those are the best ones. They, yes. Uh, a formal presentations for me don't go well. I, I have to uh, tell a story of right after my stroke, not right after my stroke, let's say a year after my stroke. And I start embracing that I need to give back to the community. And I joined the power to end stroke program. And they were all about me going and talking, speaking. And they said, we have churches that we would like for you to go talk to. Now, I am not a public speaker. And especially a year after a stroke, I'm definitely not a public speaker. Uh, so I went, there was a large congregation. I'm, I, there was, I can't even tell you how many people were there, but it, it, it was at least a thousand people. It was huge. That was huge for me to talk in front of a thousand people. And I, I showed up with a formal presentation and when they called me up to the stage and I had just watched some young men singing and it was beautiful and wonderful and they did such a good job. And then here comes me and I have, and they were very charismatic and I don't have any of that. So I get up on stage with my formal presentation and I didn't do, I, I don't know what I did. I mean, completely blank. No, no I, I didn't do any of it, but I remember looking out at someone and she was crying and I thought, I don't know if I'm doing well and she's crying or if she just wants me to walk off the stage, but apparently I did really well, um, with the, with whatever I said and did, I touched them. So I have found that the formal presentations aren't for me and, and to con- make that human connection is the most important part. Yeah. The thing that I like about formal presentations is it reminds me of what I wanted to talk about. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. Something else that you mentioned in your email to me is that you want people to feel empowered after their stroke. Absolutely. We, we have the power to, I I want them to feel that they have the resources that they need. There's nothing worse than, than feeling helpless in a situation. And there comes a point where you need to see 
I can do this. And to get out of that, that place where you don't think you can do anything and that, that you can move forward. And I think just by having a stroke and understanding and saying that those stages of depression and those stages of doubt are okay, but you got to get up. You got to get up and you've got to do the work and you've got to put in the work and you will be rewarded. And how much? I don't know. But you'll be rewarded for your, but with effort will come progress. We don't know in what form, we don't know how much, but you will show progress. If you don't, you won't. That's the one known. If you don't, you won't. Mm -hmm. It's the unknown that scares us. So getting up on that stage in front of a lot of people, that would be enough to make me not remember anything. Mm. And I would suggest that you are very charismatic. I think you have a wonderful energy about you and caring enough to go and talk to people. That's that's a big deal. And I'm going to guess that you left those people feeling, what's the word I'm looking for? Feeling very encouraged to connect with someone. And if they were not a survivor, most people know someone who's had a stroke. So to connect with those people on it in a different way, you know, so. Well, remember, Deb, I had a loss of inhibition, which is the <laughs> only reason I said <laughs> yes and got that. on that stage <laughs> because the, the old Angela would never have done that. There's, there's a lot of, if people would see post-stroke, there, there are a lot of things that I don't like about it. Uh, there are a lot of things that I wish weren't the way they were, but I think that's true with anybody in life. There are a lot of really good things that have come from this. The loss of inhibition is allowing me to talk to you. It's allowing me to run a stroke group. It's allowing me to, if someone were to ask me to go and speak in front of a group of people, I could do it. It might be a train wreck, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it, those are things that, that I never would have done before, but I made a choice. I made a choice that this was what I was going to do and see if it was going to help me. And as it did, I build on that. I built on that. And that's what I want stroke survivors to do. Lean into something. If it's helpful, build on that. And it may not look like anything that you ever thought you would do. Lean into it. And it, it, it has made me grow as a person and made me grow as a survivor. And the, it also helped me uh, along my road to be a caregiver. And that is something that I think, you know, a lot of the caregivers feel left out on this whole process of the stroke. I have a caregiver that she says, you know, everybody asks me how my husband's doing. How's he doing? Is he doing okay? Is he getting along fine? 
we tend to forget that there's a, a person who also had the effects of a stroke and, uh, and the, the struggle that they're going through and how if we don't make sure that they're okay or that they don't have the resources they need, that affects the stroke survivor and their recovery. Yeah. It's almost like they become invisible. They become invisible. Well, except for if they're needed. True. You know? Yes. So what can we take from you? What can we take from you? What can we take from you? And, and, um, that's kind of how healthcare systems are functioning right now. They're assuming that if someone lives with a person, that that person now will become their caregiver. We don't even consider the term care partner, right? You know, we just make it caregiver and that's pretty harmful to a lot of people. And that is how people end up in the ICU that I used to work with because they overgive because it's expected of them, you know, probably, you know, family history and beliefs and all these things that come into play with all of that. And really we need to take care of ourselves so that we can be there for our loved ones. And it's funny you say that because when, when I've, and I now understand what caregivers mean. Whenever I would say to a caregiver in the group, you know, you really need to take a self-care day. They would all, you need to take a day or you need to take an hour. And, and I would try to teach them that. And they would look at me like, I'm going to come up there and slap you. How am I and supposed to do that? When am I going to? And so exactly. uh, when I became a caregiver, that's it, it, all of the, all of the things came to me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I ever said that to a person. You know, you should go get a massage. Oh, I should go get a massage. I have time for a massage. And during that massage, I'll be worrying about the person that I'm helping. Yes, exactly. Um, oh man, I just had a thought, leave my head again. <laughs> I really am rubbing off. <laughs> no, this is me. I have been this way my whole life. Um, so on the caregiver thing, oh, this is what it was. So I've been teaching for quite a few years now. And something that I noticed in students was, is true for me. And I think this is just true for humans. Anytime you embark on a new adventure, whether you chose it or it was chosen for you, your insecurities are going to come out. All of the things that you feel like you're not good at, they're right there in your face. And it, it's hard sometimes to deal with that. And so over the years, what I've noticed in the caregiving circle is we all know that we need to take care of ourselves, but sometimes we just don't know how to do that. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, um, looking at different ways to do things, not just for the survivor, for you too. So if, if you're a child of a survivor and you're, you have a little more on your plate right now, and let's just one example that I can think of that I hear a lot is people go over to their parents' house and they'll clean the house for them and do the grocery shopping, but you still have your children, your spouse, your house, and your job, right? That's an awful lot of 
Thanksgiving, but mom and dad won't let somebody come into the house and clean for them. Well, are you willing to let someone come into your house and clean for you? You know, that when I finally figured things like that out for Mm -hmm. myself, it's like at some point you have to be willing to let go of something if you're going to give and give well. Right. And for me personally, I don't have a problem with somebody coming into my house and cleaning. I've done it before. Of course, I clean before they come. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't? I know, right? But, you know, find the thing, find the thing that you're willing to just let go of. And I think a lot of it comes down to the need to control so many things and believe that you're the only one who can do it best or right. But, you know, something has to give. Absolutely. Something, something has to give and they initially Superman and Superwoman, uh, you know, the care partner, they, they wear themselves out, wear themselves down to take care of their loved one. And they'll do all the things if they can, they're going to do everything. They're going to tackle it. And I try to tell them you, if someone's offering, you take them up on it because a lot of times, sadly, that disappears as the recovery goes on. You know, it's six months down the road, you're not hearing from people that want to help. So if you set up that schedule now that every Tuesday you take Tom to therapy, that that sets up a, a schedule that early on that takes it off of you early on. Don't be superhero initially. So that then you're at your, you're at wit's end four months into this thinking, oh, well, they they'll be better by then. Well, maybe, maybe not. Right. And, and where are you? But the, the thing that I tell uh, people who always say, you know, I wish I could do something. And I always ask a caregiver, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And I told them, I said, don't ask a caregiver what you can do. Find something and do it. Yeah. Do it for that. Do, you, you know, certain things. So if it, if the, the grass needs to be cut, go cut the grass. If you ask, they're not going to tell you that, how, how they can help. That is so true. We have a problem with receiving in our culture. I'm currently working on that. It's really nice to get things. It's nice to get help. It's nice to receive gifts. It feels good. And, um, happened again. <laughs> oh, if you tell people no often enough, they won't ask anymore. That's all that's, right. that's happening. That's really all that happens. And I love Brene Brown and I've listened mm. to her so many times. And I remember in one talk that she gave, she was talking about the ways that people respond in a crisis. There's two typical ways. There's the person who leaves because they don't know what to do. And then there's the person that needs to take over, which, you know, it seems like nobody's going to be happy no matter what happens. Right. So maybe getting better and asking for help, getting better at doing for people just because, you know, I, I used to do that for my neighbors where I used to live. I knew that, um, the woman wasn't doing well physically. So I would just cut the front lawn. Every time yes. I cut my grass, I just would walk next door and cut the front lawn. 
it felt good for me to do it. It was, I didn't have to ask. I didn't need permission. You know, it wasn't like going in the backyard where I would say, Hey, I'm going to go in the back and cut your grass. I just did it. Right. And they appreciated it. And it was really, it was what an extra 10 minutes of my time. Right. And so little things like that. Um, but I think that we need to get better at the way we ask and we need to get better at asking for help and receiving help. If they only knew the, the process of how, you know, this, uh, the, the time frame could be a time frame that you can't sustain that level of, of work for that long. So I, I, I try and what I, what I hope I've done with stroke survivors and caregivers, and this is what I want for medical professionals who are working with neurological patients to realize you can, you can over a period of time, set them up to where they're using neuroplasticity for their physical and mental health. They are, the caregiver is asking for assistance, accepting any assistance that comes along the way. If you're teaching them this early on, they're learning how to communicate with each other better, the stroke survivor and their, their care partners in their life. And you're teaching them skills to where I have a lot of survivors. They're still coming to the group seven, eight, 10 years later, but they're doing it mainly so they can help other people. They want to help the new ones that are coming in. There's the sustainability piece. When we do, when we set something up for success, you know, to in that empowerment, it's like an empowerment process. When you empower people to take their health and their care in their own hands, then they will recover well and they will have something to give back. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's wonderful. I love it so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I so enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for reaching out. I never did even say, so hello, Angela. (laughs) Welcome to (laughs) Noggins and Neurons. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.